835, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Oh, the irony is delicious. <laughs> last uh, last night, there was an election in Montana. We talked about this briefly yesterday. Um, the Republic, there's only one congressman for the entire state of Montana, and that congressman stepped down to take over as the Secretary of the Department of Interior in the Trump administration. That created a vacancy. There was a special election. The election was yesterday. Montana is a reliably Republican state. The, Repub- the Democrats have been trying trying, trying, trying desperately to pick up a congressional seat. Um, and the mainstream media desperately wants them to succeed because then the story is going to be, um, look what's happening. You know, Donald Trump is going to destroy the Republican Party. Here's the evidence. So far, that hasn't materialized. There's an open seat in Georgia. Democrat um, in one of these open type of primaries came close but did not pick that seat up. There's going to be a general election. The Democrats going to lose. Same thing was true in Kansas. Montana was the same thing. Democrats putting a ton of money, a ton of money into trying to defeat the Republican candidate who had lost in a race for governor, you know, last year. Um, the Republican candidate had a couple of flaws, but but it's a reliably Republican seat. But this was this was one of the elections that people were watching. Well, the race took an interesting turn two days ago when a reporter for the Guardian newspaper, the Guardian is an extremely left wing uh, British newspaper. And the reporter for The Guardian, you're probably familiar with the story, um, what he does is he bum-rushes the room. The candidate is, is in a room. It's a private room. He's doing a, a sit-down interview. He's getting ready to start to do an interview with some reporters from Fox News. But, it, but it's a private room. It's closed off. This reporter for The Guardian comes into the room. He's not supposed to be there. He refuses instructions to leave. He sticks his voice recorder in the guy's face. While you know he's getting ready to do this other interview and starts asking him questions about the CBO scoring of the Health Care Act, he refuses to leave, and the congressional candidate you know ends up losing losing his temper. Greg Gianforte is his name. He loses his temper and he grabs the guy's wrist and they kind of struggle. And the way the story gets reported is he body slammed the reporter onto the ground and, and broke his glasses. I, I think what really probably happened is they started wrestling and tussling, and the, the guy got flipped. But there's no excuse. The congressional candidate should not have laid hands on the reporter. My position is, and actually one of our texters yesterday made this point, reporters nowadays, particularly political reporters, especially those who are agenda-driven, are more like paparazzi and less like journalists. Here, anything we can do to try to get the comment, and we can be rude, and we can be where we're not supposed to be, and we can ignore instructions, and we can stick our um, you know tape recorders in your face – um, that that appears to be the attitude that's there. Now, just because that is a lousy, rude attitude, it doesn't mean that the congressional candidate was right in grabbing the guy's wrist and struggling with him and you know taking him to the ground. So the, the congressional candidate was wrong. He has subsequently apologized for that. They issued misdemeanor charges. Who knows where exactly that's going to go. But the truth is some of these super hyper-aggressive reporters in the age of Trump out to pursue agendas, they – they bait, I think, they bait the candidates into doing these things. And it's, again, the candidates have to be bigger. You have to step back. Maybe you have to increase security. Maybe you have to start charging people with, you know, trespass when they're in areas where they're not. But the, the guy was wrong. But anyhow, this was the big story. Yesterday, 
I went to bed, and I was kind of when I, when I when I stopped looking at the internet, the race was close. It was like forty-seven percent, forty-seven percent. I woke up this this morning, and I, the alarm goes off at about five o'clock, and I uh, kind of turn on the TV, and I have some of the talking head shows on. And as I'm trying to wake up, I, I notice that nobody is talking about this race. That told me that the Republican won. Because I guarantee you, if the Republican had lost, this would have been the, the lead story. But, uh, yes, the numbers are Greg uh, Gianforte won one handily, essentially, 50, 51 percent of the vote to, like, 43 percent of the vote. So he, he won handily. And I'm not sure whether this incident, if it had happened a week ago, would it have changed the outcome of the election? I, I don't know. But he wins handily. But here's the interesting aspect of this. In Montana... They have early voting, and the preliminary estimates were about 60% of the ballots that were cast in that race were cast early. So people had already voted. So to the extent there were voters who were unhappy with this guy for, quote-unquote, body-slamming a paparazzi, that that couldn't factor in because they'd already voted. They didn't have a chance. There wasn't time to go back and get your ballot back. So... It was interesting because as I was watching some of the talking head shows today that we're discussing it and reading some of these stories, you have Democrats who are absolutely up in arms about, wait for it, early voting. Now, <laughs> how, how many times over the last couple years have we heard the stories from the left? Oh, the Republicans are out there trying to suppress the vote. Look at all the things that they're doing to try to stop early voting. We need to get as many people as possible to the polls. All these objections about early voting and things like that. All it is is an effort to, again, try to skew votes you know, away from Democrats to the Republicans. How often have we heard that story? Well, this morning, the argument from the left is early voting is terrible. If if people would have not voted, if people had had to go to the polls yesterday, knowing what happened on Wednesday, well, the results of the race would be completely different. The um, the phrase is hoisted upon your own petard, I would guess. And again, I'm not sure one way or the other this would have made any difference at all. Matter of fact, in Montana, I think there's probably at least a certain segment that would think, OK, going after a paparazzi might even make you more likely to be elected as a candidate. But regardless, it is sort of funny to listen to the discussion. Early voting, early voting, early voting. We love it. We love it. We love it. Except when... It doesn't work out in our favor, in which case we hate it, we hate it, we hate it. Huh. Interesting irony. All right, coming up next, three big things. We start out with a story out of Madison. A student says that she believes there is a hostile environment at her high school. I will tell you why and ask what we should do about it. We discuss. It's 842. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. WTMJ lets you experience Wisconsin's finest supper clubs at half price. This week, this week, our featured restaurant is Katarina's Restaurante in Milwaukee. It's been family-owned since 1982 and features original Italian recipes. Today, at 1 o'clock, you can get a $50 certificate for only 25 bucks. It is like stealing. The food is great. These will go quickly. We only have 100 available. Get yours today starting at 1 o'clock by heading to WTMJSupperClub.com. All right. Big thing number one. There are four public high schools in Madison, Wisconsin. One of the high schools is named James Madison Memorial High School. 
It was established, I believe, in 1966. Got about 2,000 students. All right. The school was named after James Madison. James Madison was the fourth president of the United States. He is one of the founding fathers um, um, from Virginia. All right. James Madison was a slave owner. They estimate that at least five generations of enslaved African-Americans lived on his plantation. Madison was one of 18 United States presidents who owned slaves. Now, as an aside, Hondo, Gene Miller got this in one. The city of Madison. Do you know who the city of Madison is named after? Hondo says, is it James Madison? Yes, the city of Madison is named after James Madison, the fourth president of the United States, who did I mention was one of 18 presidents who owned slaves. All right, which brings us to spring of 2017. There is a young woman who is a senior at the high school who is asking that the school district change the name of the school. She says there's a need to create a more inclusive environment for African-American students and that the name of the school, James Madison Memorial High School, contributes to a hostile school culture. The lack of, and this is a quotation from the story I'm looking at, the lack of representation I feel in the school makes me feel more than unsafe. It's important, um, uh, she says, Do you think it's truly appropriate to glorify a man that enslaved my ancestors, she says on her petition. Um, Over 500 people have signed the petition. She read it at the school board. The school board says, well, we're grateful that our students have brought this concern to our attention. We are continually focused on strengthening our school community, and it's important that students can identify concerns and share their perspectives. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Woman says, I, I just I feel unsafe. I feel there is a hostile culture at this high school towards African-American students. You have this huge achievement gap between the way white students do, uh, perform and African-American students perform. And she believes that a contributing cause is the fact that we call the high school James Madison Memorial High School because, after all, he was a slave owner. And, again, the money quotation here is, do you think it's truly appropriate to glorify a man that enslaved my ancestors? All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Ah, Madison School officials say we're taking this concern seriously at the risk of, again, being labeled insensitive or even worse, that R word, this is one of those situations where I, I think you really need to take a step back and say, you know, there are real racial issues that you have to deal with, but at the same time, we cannot sanitize history. And no, no, we're sorry, young lady, we are not going to change the name of the high school. And by the way, why are you just concerned about the high school? I mean, if you're going to change the name of the high school, Shouldn't we then, by that same theory, change the name of Madison? If Madison was named after James Madison, should we call Madison Frank or Jeff or something like that? Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Does she have a point? Is this a hostile environment for African-American students that we call the school James Madison Memorial High School? 
Jim in Oconomowoc. Jim, you're first. Good morning. Jim. Jim, Jim, Jim. I am in complete, complete agreement. I think history should be rewritten. I'm offended that it refers to my country as partaking in slavery. I think slavery should be rewritten out of all our history books. I assume you were being sarcastic. A lot of times sarcasm doesn't work on the radio. You were being sarcastic, correct? I am being very sarcastic. Okay, <laughs> right, fair. okay. fair enough. I just Sometimes people don't get that. I, I, well, th- I mean, I, th- that's, that's it. 18 U.S. presidents were slave owners. It was a different time. This is not an endorsement of slavery, but it is a reflection, you know, times change, and I think to try to now judge for example, one of the founding fathers, by virtue of the fact that, gee, he was a plantation owner, as many people were, that means that we, we just, it's a hostile environment in 2017. Really, I mean, th- this, this young lady needs to get over herself. The, the mark of character, be it national or personal, is seeing an error and correcting it. Well, we it, did that. It, exactly right. Thank, thanks. I mean, you, you, first of all, you can't sanitize history. But secondly, th- this idea that, you know, you've named... I mean, you, you want to talk about somebody that strikes me as being way, way, way too sensitive or, again, is just looking for, you know, a three-page story in one of the Madison newspapers to get, you know, some attention to, you know, her, herself. That This idea that, gee, I just, I, I am offended. It is the school, the name contributes to a hostile environment. I mean, how many people? How many people make the connection, gee, this was named after the fourth president of the United States and the fourth president of the United States owned slaves, so that's why That's why if there's problems between white students and black students at, at, at James Madison High School, and I don't know whether there is or not, but that's that's why. I mean, seriously, 414-799-1620. And again, what, wh- where do we go from here? My question is, if that's going to be the rationale, do we then, by the same rationale, have to rename Madison? Because it seems to me, if African-American students feel uncomfortable in a high school named James Madison Memorial High School, they would also feel uncomfortable living in a community called Madison named after the same person. Jim in Muskego. Jim, you're on 620 WTMJ. Jim. Jim? Okay, let's try Nate in Shawano. Nate, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking the call. Yes, sir. Uh, the point, a couple of points I'd like to make. One is that all of the founders, or virtually all of them, um, were looking forward to opportunities to eliminate slavery. They were not supporters of it. Those that owned slaves, they knew if they would have just released slaves, it would have been difficult for their slaves to move on. So they were making changes. Their, uh, one report is that they were looking at as early as 1808, Mm -hmm. wanting to uh, eliminate slavery. Our documents, none of our documents talk about uh, slavery being only for white, or I'm sorry, freedom being only for white people. And most people don't realize that the start of the Civil War, free blacks already had the right to vote in five states, right, one in, of which was Virginia. Yeah, in five, I mean, I think, and, no, it, that, look, I mean, I, get, I don't want to get, I guess, my, my bigger point is, I, I don't, I don't want to get, I think we get sidetracked if we have a debate about, okay, what was in the heart of the fourth president of the United States, um, but, but, you know, you, you, I think you view people and their accomplishments um, by, you know, their, their times, and, and the reality is, Slavery was horrible, but it was an accepted practice at the time of our founding fathers. And so, I mean, I think to say, 
all right, we, we can't honor and recognize somebody in 2017. We're going to judge them by 2017 standards, I think is absolutely absurd. Um, you know, we have our text line just exploded on this. Can she honestly tell us that a majority of students at the school even know who James Madison is? Uh, yeah, I think that's probably a fair question as well. Somebody else texts, I'm sure the name of the high school was chosen to honor him for his presidency, not the fact that he was a slave owner. Um, yes, 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 yes. I mean, this is, but this is the ultimate irony that's going on here. You know, Thomas Jefferson, one of the founders of the modern Democratic uh, Party, and, you know, you have these Jefferson-Jackson Day dinners that used to pop up, like the Republicans have Lincoln Day dinners. Well, you know, many places, I think even in Wisconsin, they don't do the Jefferson-Jackson Day dinners anymore because of the same thing. Oh, Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, so how can we, how can we possibly associate ourselves, even though he was the founder of what turned out to be the modern Democratic Party, how can we possibly associate him? Look, here's the bottom line. I believe there is real racism in this world, and I think there's significant issues with achievement gaps and things like that. And if there's a hostile attitude towards African-American students at the school, it needs to be addressed. But worrying about the name is foolish. Jeff Wagner, glad to have you with us. A couple quick programming notes. Uh, approximately 945, we're going to be joined by the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker. We're going to be talking about what is going on with the state budget. And uh, it's a lot more interesting than you might think, given the fact that Republicans control both the Senate and the Assembly. Um, some Republicans, for reasons, that, in my opinion, pass understanding, balking at some of the things that the governor being suge- was suggesting in order to help the taxpayers. And we will be discussing that with him at approximately 9.45, um, right after the 10 o'clock news, approximately 10.07. We are going to continue our Memorial Day or pre-Memorial Day tradition. We're going to open up the phone lines for s- at least a few segments, um, giving you an opportunity to remember loved ones or friends who have served our country so well. And then, of course, at 1135, we have our Week in Review. Right now, we're in the middle of our three big things. Big thing number two. I always mention that the art, the law is an art. It is not a science. And by that, I mean when, when judges are appointed to the bench, they bring with them their ideologies. They bring with them their worldviews. They bring with them their politics. And by politics, I don't mean necessarily, gee, I, I, I was appointed by a Democrat, so I have to go along with the liberal position. But typically, if, if you're appointed by a Republican, you will tend to be conservative. If you're appointed by a Democrat, you will tend to be liberal. And there's not a better example of that than what happened yesterday. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, and that's the East Coast, that's um, kind of like the... They sit out of Richmond, Virginia, so it's the East Coast. Together with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is California and the West Coast, they tend; those courts tend to be, I think, probably the two, you know, two of the most liberal appellate courts. Um, yesterday, they came out with a ruling on the Trump travel ban. The Fourth Circuit heard this case and bonk. What that means is normally... Appellate courts, federal appellate courts, when they hear cases, it's three-judge panels. What they can do, however, is have cases, and it it happens rarely, where all the judges sit. Um, So there's 15 full-time judges. 
10 are Democrats or were appointed by Democrats. Five were Republicans. Two of the Republicans recused themselves from this travel ban case. And yesterday, by a vote of 10 to 3, with all those judges who were appointed by Democrats voting against President Trump, and the three people appointed by Republicans voting for the President Trump travel ban, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals said it would not reinstate Trump's revised travel ban, the tra- which is sort of interesting that you have these judges taking this position, again, given the illustrations of how dangerous the world has become, especially in light of the Manchester bombings. And I understand that the Manchester bombings weren't done by somebody who came in from a terrorist country. At the same time, um, it does appear that the person who did the bombings had perhaps been in a country that, uh, well, was lax with regard to its standards on terrorism and probably learned something there. In any event, you will remember President Trump's modified travel ban order. Um, what this would have done, what this ban will do, is put a temporary moratorium on people coming in from a handful of countries, just a handful of countries, in order for us to establish better vetting procedures. And the argument is that many of these these countries, these six countries that are identified, I, I use the, country, the term country sort of in quotation marks because in some cases they're, they're nothing really more than regimes. And the concern is that we don't do an adequate job of screening who is coming in from these various countries. So it's a matter of safety. Um, The countries involved are majority Muslim countries. But to me, it is extremely important to note that this this ban doesn't – there's lots of countries in the world that are majority Muslim countries. It doesn't apply to all majority Muslim countries. It just applies to the, the six countries. Well, in any event, you had the liberal members of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals um, seized on the fact that, gee, during the campaign, you know, President Trump talked about, you know, threats from, you know, Muslims. And as a result, the concern was, well, that uh, the, the, so the Fourth Circuit said, well, he said this during the, the campaign. Um, and so that means because he said that he had concerns about Muslim terrorism during the campaign, that means that this modified travel ban, it has to be racially motivated or it has to be you know, a targeting a particular religion. With all due respect to the judges in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, that is a ridiculous position. I mean, candidates say all sorts of things on the campaign trail and the idea that you are now going to turn a campaign statement by a candidate when they are running for office into a constitutional violation is absolutely absurd and i understand that there's some people who are applauding this saying oh this is tremendous this is a political defeat for the president Um, The truth of the matter is the real losers in the decision issued by the Fourth Circuit yesterday are all of us who are at risk from people from of terrorism for people who are trying to kill us. And if something bad happens as a result of the Fourth Circuit rejecting this modified travel ban, these judges will have blood on their hands. 
And again, I understand that there's political ramifications here. And I understand that people are just applauding over the fact that, okay, President Trump got a defeat. But the bottom line is, at least in my opinion, this travel ban, the modified one that they came out with, was rational, it was reasonable, and it was tailored to address concerns. And to me, it is very, very troubling that now you have some judges who I believe are politically motivated to an extent who are sitting there saying, we're going to look at campaign statements and we're going to use that as a way of trying to interpret, you know, what legislation or what executive orders should and do mean. It's a scary precedent to set. Now, this case is going to go up to the United States Supreme Court, and I continue to believe at the end of the day, the Supreme Court is going to have no problem with this travel ban. But again, if you want to understand why I often say that the law is an art, not a science, and why it is so important who gets pointed to benches, uh, you had the five Democrat-appointed, ju- ten ju- Democrat-appointed judges on the Tenth Circuit They're the ones that struck down the travel ban. And if some terrorist comes into this country from one of those quote-unquote countries or regimes um, over in the next month or two or over the last few weeks while there's been a hold on this, those judges will be the ones who are and should be held accountable. All right, it is 916. Big thing number three is coming up. Wisconsin's moving closer and closer, requiring able-bodied welfare recipients to work and take drug tests. We'll discuss. Stick around. It's 919, Jeff Wecker, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us again. uh, We're going to be joined, oh, in about 20 minutes or so by the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker, coming up at 10.07. We do our Memorial Day remembrances. The Week in Review is at 11.30. Lots of stuff in between as well. Big story number three. Wisconsin is moving closer to becoming the first state in the country which would require needy but able-bodied adults to work and submit to drug tests for to qualify for public health coverage. Um, yesterday, the Joint Finance Committee on a party-line vote approved these various provisions. Um, in addition, it would require parents on food stamps to work in order to receive benefits. These programs are only targeted at able-bodied citizens who do not have child care responsibility. Um... Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. One of my concerns about the drug testing thing has always been: is it cost effective enough? Because you know, in the programs that do it, they they don't typically find that many people. Um, they, there's not that many people that test positive. So you you become. I guess the issue is, you know, is it worth the money to try to find so very few people? In principle, in principle, the idea that somebody should have to either be working or actively looking for work or engaged in job training and not be taking drugs, I guess I just don't, in principle and in theory, I don't find those to be unreasonable requirements in principle because the truth of the matter is, as the governor talks about, you know, you, we want the public assistance programs to be, you, you want them to be safety nets. You don't want them to be mattresses. And the reality is that if you're on drugs, even if you're one of that small percentage of people that's on drugs, it's going to be difficult to find a job. In addition, 
No, we want to create incentives to people to get off of the dole. And the best way to do that is to find work. Okay, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, in theory, are these are are these good policies? Is it worthwhile to say, all right, able-bodied people, as a condition of public health benefits, as a condition of food stamps, we expect you to be working, looking for a job, and we're going to develop some form of drug testing. Now, the devil is, of course, in the details. And as I've said, my concern about the drug testing is, does it cost more than it's ultimately worth? But in theory, I don't have an issue. Let's start with Dave on the south side. Dave, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Yeah, Jeff, I don't have a problem in theory with it either, but there are people, my brother's daughter have, like, she's on federal disability, has some sort of psychological programs, uh, problems, and I don't think she's going to be uh, going under that. I don't know if she's going to be included in that or not, you know. Well, I think, I mean, again, it requires, I mean, thanks for call, Dave. It, it requires able-bodied people, and if you've got a... If you've got a, a disability, whether it's physical or mental, that prevents you from being able to work, then, then you're not included in this. But this, so, and, and the de- the devil is always in the details as to how you define that. But um, again, I don't. My understanding is this is not applied. This does not apply to the people that have disabilities that prevent them from being able to work, as you would define disabilities. So, just off the top of my head, I don't think that there, I don't think that there is a concern about that at all. But you know, here's the the bottom line of this entire thing. I think it's again, these are reasonable things to I think implement and to, you know, expect. And I think the legislature is on the right track. I don't know how often they're going to be talking about drug testing um to get a job, for example, here. You know, any job offer is contingent upon passing a, a drug test. And then, uh, to my knowledge, we don't do any sort of random drug testing beyond that unless there's evidence to believe that somebody you know, shows up at work on drugs or something like that. But as a general condition and in theory, especially if you can keep the cost down, I don't have an issue with this at all. And it looks like it's on the verge of becoming law. The Trump administration, I think, to the extent you need waivers for things like food stamp programs, I think that unlike the Obama administration, they will give them to the state and we'll see how it goes. But if the goal is getting able-bodied people to work, getting them out of a cycle of dependency, getting them off the dole and trying to give them a little bit of a kick in the butt to help better themselves to the extent that anybody needs it, what's wrong? 927, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Hey, our classic free ride is back out later today. John McCure in Wisconsin's Afternoon News will be broadcasting live from 3 to 6 at Woodman's in Menominee Falls. And we'll be registering you for a chance to win the 1968 Valenti Oldsmobile 442 convertible. That is this afternoon. Three to six, Woodman's in Menominee Falls. It's the WTMJ Classic Free Ride, sponsored by New Mail Medical in Wauwatosa and Summerfest. All right, I apologize for the next two minutes because this is a story that I know just listening to it will make you feel dumber. Your, your IQ points will drop. I apologize in advance. Here's the headline. Woman sues Jelly Belly Candy, claiming she was duped into purchasing the candy because... She didn't know it included sugar. 
Okay. <laughs> okay, so jelly bellies are what that, that's like that's like uh, jelly beans, right? That's that, that's what they are. Okay. She has honest to God filed a lawsuit saying she did not know that they um, jelly bellies contained sugar. The lawsuit concerns Jelly Belly Sport Beans, a product designed on its website um, that are clinically proven to maximize sports performance. Yeah, because they got sugar in them. The beans include carbohydrates, electrolytes, and various vitamins, the lawsuit says. It also, they include evaporated cane juice. That's a clever way of getting around using the term sugar. Her lawsuit alleges fraud, negligent misrepresentation, and product liability. As failure to use the word sugar makes the product more attractive to athletes. Yeah, you got a bunch of athletes that are gobbling jelly beans, and they don't know that it's um, that it, they don't know that it's there is sugar in it. According to Forbes, Jelly Belly called the lawsuit nonsense in an April motion to dismiss it. I would actually use a different word were I not on the radio. But yes, it, nonsense. I, Jane Matinier, you're laughing at this, huh? <laughs> I didn't realize I was an athlete. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly it. Um, boy, what a shock. I'm eating jelly beans. I'm gobbling jelly beans down, and I find out they have sugar. I'm going to sue. I, again, I, I had a, a professor in law school, the late Jim Giardi, who always used to say, well, you have to realize, Jeff, that people can sue anybody for anything, and people do sue anybody for anything. Imagine the shock and horror that this woman, after eating jelly beans, must have gone through when she found, hey, these jelly beans taste really good, and it's because there's sugar in them. Give me money. Give me strength. It's 936, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Governor Walker joins us in about 10 minutes, and at 10.07, we do our opportunity to give you your chance, as we do every year at this time, uh, your Memorial Day tributes. Uh, we also are going to be letting you experience Wisconsin's finest supper clubs at half price. This week, our featured restaurant is Katarina's Restaurante in Milwaukee. It's a great place. It's been family-owned since 1982. It features original Italian recipes. Their desserts are out of this world. Today, today at 1 o'clock, you can get a $50 gift certificate for only 25 bucks. These go quickly. We only have 100 available. Get yours today, starting at 1 o'clock, by heading to WTMJSupperClub.com. All right. Uh... The, the controversy involving confidential documents continues. Uh, over the last, uh, particularly since Donald Trump took over as president, but, but also an ongoing problem before that, has been the fact that you have people with access to confidential documents, classified information, who for whatever reasons decide that they want to make it public. Maybe they're trying to suck up to some newspaper reporter or some TV reporter. Um, maybe they're trying to make their boss look bad or whatever. So you have leaks of confidential and classified information. And in many cases, it's against the law to do that. In many cases, it's against the law to do that. Um, in other cases, it's just a, a violation of a protocol. But every once in a while, it becomes a huge issue, especially, in my opinion, when you're dealing with national security matters or where you're dealing with terrorism stuff. And that's what happened earlier this week. At the beginning of the week, we had the horrible terrorist bombing at the concert in Manchester, England. Uh, British authorities were investigating this. They produced a bunch of confidential information as part of their ongoing investigation. They shared it with the United States. Somebody got access to it 
and pretty much immediately ran and gave this information to the New York Times. And then on Wednesday, the New York Times publishes pictures of the shrapnel, the backpack, the battery used by this guy. Um, The Times, New York Times, refuses, as always happens, to disclose where they got the information. And this information was restricted circulation, official use only. It wasn't top secret, but it was information that was not supposed to be disclosed. Um, What apparently happened is the British government shares it with the U.S. government, and somebody immediately decides to run to the press, and the press publishes. And I, there's, we have no laws in the United States which prevent them from doing that. Um, as we've talked about, you know, locally, you can have somebody who breaks into a computer server of a business, steals confidential proprietary information, gives it to the local newspaper, and the local newspaper acting as essentially a fence um, then can put it out there for people to read, and they can sell papers based on that, and there's nothing you can do about it. Similarly, um, we don't have any laws in this country that prevent news organizations that get access to these materials from, from running with them. But you know, in Great Britain, they are, I think, legitimately outraged by this happening. And you know, they're, they, they confront President Trump, and they say, look, you know, w- we can't continue to share terrorist information, you know, information with you about our battle against terrorism if the United States can't figure out how to keep this classified information from becoming public because there is the potential that it can compromise investigations and things of the like. Now, I don't know that there was anything in this information that was in the New York Times that compromised the investigation, but there is always that potential. And so, you know, now you have President Trump condemning the leaks and indicating that he's going to redouble his efforts to get the Justice Department and the FBI to start investigating sources of the leaks and theoretically, you know, prosecuting the leakers. That, and, uh, <laughs> that is, those people who choose to do these leaks. Um, of course, now you've got the, the newspapers who depend in part for their commercial viability, in part from you know getting this information and trafficking in the leaks, um, you know they're they're out there saying, oh, this would be terrible if you would crack down on this. This would be you know awful if if you know we were to prosecute these people who who do this. And I understand that from the perspective of President Trump, who apparently you know decided to take it upon himself to you know share classified information intelligence that he got from the israelis with the russians i understand that it might be somewhat ironic that he's the one that is now you know going after the these leaks but the bottom line of this at least in my opinion is first of all president trump should be much more circumspect um in who he decides to disclose classified intelligence information to and as I've said before, the Russians are not our friends. So that's number one. But but number two, that these leaks that come out of the government, whether it's people, again, trying to undermine the Trump administration or they just want to curry favor with reporters or whatever, when you're dealing especially with issues with regard to terrorism and when you make that decision to share information with the press during the course of an ongoing investigation – that's a really, really, really big deal because you know 
that especially in today's media environment, there's not going to be a lot of discretion used by the newspapers or used by the TV stations. They're going to run with it when they get it. So that's why I think you do need to say, right, if you're going to do this and you're going to share classified information and you're going to violate laws, you're going to lose your job and you're going to be prosecuted. Because while we all want the information, we all want to see it right away, we're all fascinated by this, if it compromises sources, if it compromises informants, if it makes the authorities' job more difficult in trying to root out terrorist cells, I don't want to have that happen. And the people that help the terrorists in that fashion by sharing that information, they deserve to be identified and prosecuted. It's 942. When we come back, we hope to be joined by the governor of the state of Wisconsin. Stick around. It's 946. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Um, once again, we want to remind you that today's the day for our Supper Club opportunity. We let you experience Wisconsin's finest supper clubs at half price. This week, our featured restaurant is Katarina's Restaurante in Milwaukee. It has been family-owned since 1982, and it features original Italian recipes today at 1 o'clock. Today at 1 o'clock, you can get a $50 certificate for only $25 these go quickly. We only have 100 available. Get yours today starting at 1 o'clock by heading to WTMJSupperClub.com. In addition, I want to remind everybody that this has become a WTMJ tradition, and it is one that we are going to continue and carry over um, at 10.07, right after the 10 o'clock news, in advance of Memorial Day, we're going to open up the phone lines, and we're going to give you an opportunity to... Uh, Give your remembrance to friends or loved ones who passed away, um, who served our country. I know it's always one of our most moving type of segments that we end up um, offering. So that's it. Also, a quick reminder. I want to say a very special thank you to everybody. Last week, what we had happen, of course, we uh, devoted a good portion of this program to uh, Gene Miller and his effort to try to, as part of our WTMJ CARES program, raise money for the Lance Sijon Memorial. Um, you you just just uh, you know blew it. Um, you know you know blew the doors off that as far as you know raising money. Um, the dedication of the memorial is this morning at 1045. We're, I believe, going to be live streaming that on Facebook Live as well, so you can follow that along, and we will be um, bringing you coverage of that. All right, as promised, we are now speaking of the Lance Sijon Memorial. Um, we are joined by the governor of the state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker, who I, you're on your way to that dedication, aren't you, Governor? I, I am indeed. In <laughs> fact, I was just at uh, my old high school, Delvin Darian High School, uh, talking to juniors and seniors here, and, uh, and just mentioned the principal. That's exactly where I'm at. at uh, headed up to uh, be a part of that wonderful dedication for a Congressional Medal of Honor recipient, Landside John. Uh, Governor, um, we, we spoke to you last week. Of course, um, the, the budget is working its way through the Joint Finance Committee. Um, I know last week you were very, very concerned that there was the one of the, your big proposals was you wanted to remove the state portion of tax from the property tax and i know that was something that you were extremely concerned about you know what's going on with the budget what are your ha- what what are you happy with what are you frustrated about yeah well I, I think overall we're heading in a good direction i just met the other day with 
Republicans in the state assembly. I, I talk every week to the leadership in the assembly and senate in person, and, and had a good chance to talk there. And uh, again, good things going on. Love the fact that the uh, Joint Finance Committee uh, voted to uh, to continue to have it uh, for the next two years. A freeze on tuition at all University of Wisconsin campuses, unprecedented uh, in Wisconsin history. This will be six years in a row with froze tuition. Uh, probably unprecedented compared to almost every other state across the nation. Love that. Love the fact that they signed off on major portions of our uh, welfare reform, which is some of the most significant in the nation and really in the in the uh, in the tradition of our great Governor Tommy Thompson, who led the way on welfare reform. We're now leading the way here as well. So I think those are all great things. And I, I got to tell you, just as an aside, you know, to hear from some of the Democrats on the Finance Committee now talking about trying to offer free tuition. Flint, their party was in charge a few years back, and in the decade before our freeze, tuition went up 118%, uh, some 8% per year. I mean, it's just ridiculous to think that people, somehow those politicians think that the public's going to forget that. We're the ones providing a freeze. We're the ones providing relief for, for students and working families. But obviously, as you mentioned, you know, when it comes to... Uh, uh, the uh, state property tax, I think now when we get such sizable majorities in the state assembly and the state senate and obviously a Republican governor, now is the time to do big, bold things like eliminating an entire tax. And uh, I hope we'll be able to do that. I, I heard from some people in, in the Republican Assembly Caucus who, who uh, disagree with that for really two reasons. One is uh, some believe that uh, what is designated for forestry uh, needs to still get that money. I, I've said, hey, I, I support forestry like I support the cheesemakers and agriculture and manufacturing. We'll continue to do that going forward. And the other, the other reason is I think some are listening to some of the bureaucrats uh, that serve the state legislature who are telling them, be careful, you're going to uh, lose long-term uh, revenue source. And my response to that is yes, that's true. That's, we were elected to shrink the size of government, to make it more effective, more efficient, more accountable, and to lower the burden on hardworking taxpayers. And this is one way to make that permanent by eliminating the state tax on property. Governor, I, kn- I know one of the centerpieces of your budget as well was putting a ton of money back into you know, K-12 education. Is that going to happen? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, we, like I said, I was just at Delvin Darien High School this morning. Uh, great to see my own stopping grounds as a, as a student. Uh, I, I want to make sure that we have great student success, not only because it's a moral imperative, but increasingly because it's an economic imperative. We, we have more people employed than ever before. We have over 102,000 job openings right now on our state website as of last week. We we have the lowest unemployment rate uh, the state's had uh, in uh, 17 years and close to the lowest ever. We need more people trained and educated in the workforce, and part of that, the foundation of that is K-12. through 12. Uh, I put an aggressive amount in, the, the largest amount in actual dollars, they've ever received in K-12 funding. And uh, there was some talk that that might get pushed back. The good news is uh, I believe Republicans in the legislature are committed to that, and uh, I believe it will make its way all the way through the end of the budget. Uh, We're, of course, talking to Governor Scott Walker. Governor, I know one of the other issues that appears to 
again, have divided Republicans is the whole issue of, of transportation. You've been very, very clear that you didn't believe that you were sent to Madison to to raise taxes. And, you know, we're, we're having a lot of conversations. Some people are saying, OK, well, maybe we need to look at applying the gas tax, the sales tax to gasoline. Maybe we need to start looking at toll roads. Where do you think the transportation budget issue is ultimately going to land? Oh, I think we'll work this out. I mean, I, I pointed out yesterday I was at one of the uh, – we have a number of active major projects that we keep on track. I mean, one of the interesting things is so I've got a plan. Some of the assembly put out a plan. In each of those plans, uh, it provides massive uh, increases in local road districts, roads and bridges and so potholes. It includes the, ma- the highest ever fixed state highways, and it keeps our major active majors online. And uh, the difference is obviously I do that without a – without a gas tax increase, I think the my hope would be is that we'll get the work together, we'll find some ways that we can find some additional savings. It's what the public overwhelmingly tells me. Find additional savings and put it in to continue to improve transportation, which is what many lawmakers are advocating for. But, but I believe we can do it without a gas tax increase, without a vehicle registration fee increase. The one thing I caution is let's not take it out of the state budget process. Because the challenge with that is it doesn't get any easier to solve because some of the things that, that could help the transportation budget are part of the general, not the transportation budget. And the other reason I think it's a bad idea to take it out is because if it's delayed significantly or for some reason they just don't pass the transportation budget, unlike the federal government, we still have a budget. It's just the one we have right now. Well, that would be no new aid for local governments, and it would be a significant reduction about 45% reduction in what we proposed uh, for some of those major projects across the state. So the best news for, for drivers and for taxpayers is let's get it done. Let's get it done now in the budget. Let's find a way to do it without a tax increase. Let's get the major projects done. Most importantly, let's fix the state highways and the local roads. We put more money in to do that than ever before. And if we get that done, that I believe that's the biggest issue I hear from people is fix my potholes, fix my road, fix my street. We put more money than ever before in there to do that, Governor. You you, you got you got my attention at the end of last week um, when when you I, I think it was through a tweet where you suggested that yep. you you were prepared to veto the entire budget if it contained a, a tax increase. Were you serious? Oh, absolutely. And, and obviously, some people were a little uh, upset that I tweeted it, but it and it wasn't directed at the leadership. It was really you know we were hearing some rumblings and from all over the place that that some folks not only on the state property tax of not being thrilled with, with removing, eliminating that, but just in general with with the, the sense that some might feel like uh, maybe property tax relief was not as big of a deal uh, to the citizens of the state. I disagree with that. I, I think for working families, for senior citizens, for farmers and small business owners, property taxes are a big deal. And my contention was I, I want to make sure we continue to lower them. I, I said I'm pleased they're, they're lower today than they were in 2010. I want them, as I said, in 2014 when I ran for re-election, I want them to be lower in 2018 than they were in 2014, which means they'll be obviously lower than they were when we started. I just think it's important for property tax not to go up. It's, uh, it's one of the most difficult taxes out there, and the fact that we've kept it down is a big reason why the state went from being the bottom 10 in 2010 to being in the top 10 a place to do business in. 
Governor Scott Walker, thanks for spending some time with me this morning. I appreciate it. And I know everybody's going to be looking forward to seeing you at the uh, Lance Sijon Memorial Dedication coming up in about 45 minutes or so. Absolutely. Thanks, Jeff. Okay. Take care. Governor Scott Walker. Um, yeah, that, that's, I mean, last week he got a lot of attention, sent out this tweet saying, you know, if there's property tax, and the, the governor in Wisconsin, the governor has one of the broadest veto powers in the state um, with, like, lines and things you can take out. Uh, governor Walker, very clear, hey, if you, you send me a budget with, with property tax increases, I'm prepared to veto the entire thing. I didn't think he was messing around. I didn't think he was fooling around. I think he was serious, and uh, some of the folks in the state legislature need to uh, need to pay attention. It's 1010, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We are going into the Memorial Day weekend. For many people, the Memorial Day weekend around here means the unofficial start of summer. People are thinking about maybe playing golf or planting or picnics, and and that's that's all well and good. But Memorial Day, of course, has a, a greater purpose. Uh, Memorial Day, of course, a federal holiday. Um, it is designed to remember the people who died while serving in the country's armed forces. Actually, the history of Memorial Day goes back to uh, 1868, um, when it was originally known as, as Decoration Day. And I, I think as we as we go about our, our daily lives and as we, again, enjoy our picnics and enjoy our friends and enjoy, you know, the extra day off, it is always important to remember and recognize, you know, what Memorial Day was all about. It has been a tradition here at WTMJ during this uh, time slot to uh, take some time on the Friday leading into Memorial Day to open up the phone lines to you and give you an opportunity to remember a friend a loved one who served our country in the armed forces and who has uh, passed away. Now, again, technically for Memorial Day, it's designed to, you know, remember people who died while serving in the country's armed forces. I've always thought that's a, I've thought that's a bit of a narrow definition of this. And to me, the, the, the broader scheme is to, you know, remember people who have passed away, who who served our country so admirably. And that's what I want to do. We're going to open up the phone lines. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If there is someone who no longer with us, a family member, a friend that you would like to remember Leading up to Memorial Day, this is your opportunity to do that. We turn this over to you. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Your chance to remember somebody who has has passed away and uh, who served in the country's armed forces. I think it's important to do this to, again, bring home the significance of, of service the truth of the matter is that you have people who the reasons we enjoy the freedoms that, that we do are because, you know, so many people were able to were willing to serve the country and in some cases um, making the act the absolute uh, and the ultimate sacrifice. So 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, we want your phone calls. I want your phone calls, but also try to review our text line as well and, and my emails. All right, let's start with Kathleen in Bayview. Kathleen, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. Yes, good morning, Jeff. Um, I would like to remember my dad, John Francis O'Brien, who was in World War II, and um, 
he uh, died in 66. He was a, a medal uh, recipient. And I would also like to remember my son, my son David uh, Kowalewski, Staff Sergeant David Kowalewski, who died in the military. And um, mm. he was, um, I'd just like to remember Excellent. him, please. I yeah. greatly no. appreciate it. No. Thank you for the call, Kathleen. And um, again, it's thank you for the, the service of both your your um, father and your son. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Chris in Milwaukee. Chris, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. I'd like to remember my dad, who served in World War Two in North Africa. His two brothers, Emil and Steve, who served at the Battle of the Bulge and flying um, bombers out of England. Um, my uncle, also Chris, um, my uncle Chester, and my uncle um, Al, who served um, in World War II as well, and my husband, who ser- served in Vietnam. Uh, Chris, did did your did your dad and did your uncles did they ever talk about their experiences with you? Very, very little. Yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, my uncle Emil, who um, was the, in the Army Air Corps, ended up staying in the Air Force and be- going with Billy Mitchell and, and going into the Air Force mm-hmm. and served as a career officer. Yeah. You know, one of the... One of the things that I have noticed about people who served in the military, whether it was you know World War II or the Korean War or Vietnam, uh, they did so many amazing things. And in general, they, they didn't want accolades, they, and they they didn't want to d- discuss it. Uh, I think that for a lot of us, we just don't we just don't know what sacrifices these people made, so we can enjoy our freedoms. That's very true. Uh, thanks to call. I appreciate it. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Back with more of your calls in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is our WTMJ tradition here, our Memorial Day tribute, your opportunity to reflect and remember family, friends um, who served our country and have passed away. It's ten fifteen. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1018, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. This is our traditional Memorial Day treat, uh, tribute on our text line. Randy from Amberg writes, I'd like to acknowledge my grandfathers. Gilbert Backus from Oconomowoc. He worked at Pabst Dairy Farms, then Harley-Davidson, drafted, spent his Army career in the Pacific fighting the Japanese on numerous islands after Pearl Harbor. My other grandfather, Bud, was 28 years old at the time with three children at home. He served under General Patton's Third Army, went to Africa, got beat up by Rommel, then to Italy to fight Mussolini. He survived that. Then he was on the invasion of Normandy Beach in France, and then he spent the winter of 1944 and 1945 in the Ardennes Forest, which has never been colder to this date. Uh, that is the Battle of the Bulge, 414-799-1620. The, the sacrifices people made is just amazing. Arnie in Greendale. Arnie, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning, yes. I'd like to acknowledge uh, my best friend, uh, Albert Williams. Uh, he served in Vietnam. Uh, he was a decorated veteran. He was wounded in combat. And also, my uncle uh, was uh, killed in the Battle of Normandy during the Second World War. Mm. Um, I tell you, the, uh, the you know the experience. I was a little bit too young for Vietnam, but you know, older brothers um, and certainly now friends of mine, you know, who, who served. And um, I tell you, it's just the, the sacrifices that all those people made is just absolutely amazing, incredible. Well, well, my my, my friend uh, that was in Vietnam, uh, he, he told me stories about things that had happened to him. Like I said, he was wounded. And 
some of the things he told me that happened to him, I, I just I just couldn't believe it that anybody could actually go through that and yeah. come back with some uh, some sanity. It, it just amazed me. No, I mean, th- thanks for the call. You know, I mean, we we talk about you know the World War, and this is in no way, shape, or form meant to depreciate any of the sacrifices that the World War II veterans made. But we refer to them as the greatest generation. Well, I think there's a couple greatest generations, and that would include the people that that served in the Korean War, the people that served in the Vietnam War, and the people that have served in the the, the various wars that we've been fighting. You know, whether it's Desert Storm or whatever. There's lots of greatest generations that are out there. Let's talk to Vic in Two Rivers. Vic, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I would like to remember my kid brother, uh, who was buried at Darshan Cemetery last month, uh, Captain uh, Ed Morauskas, who served 22, 23 years in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was all over the world, and, uh, of course, he retired and died two days after his 60th birthday, so that's the way it goes. Um, were you, you served yourself too, Vic, right? No, I didn't. Okay, uh, they, got it. They never, they never took me. They said I was too mean, so I sent <laughs> my big brother. Understood. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Let's see, back to our text line. Uh, Donna writes, I would like to remember my dad, Kenneth Dorzinski, who served as a Marine in the Korean War. Um, yeah, absolutely. My, um... My late father was in the Marines um, during the time of the Korean War, but did not serve overseas. He was a drill sergeant. Um, let's see. Uh, Jim in West Bend writes, I'd like to remember my dad, Ludwig um, Whitman, 40th Engineer Corps, World War II. Bob in Milwaukee writes, I'd like to remember my Uncle Bob, who was in the Air Force, no longer with us, uh, passed away a year ago. 414-799-1620 is the number. Let's talk to, um, let's see, Lisa in Brookfield. Lisa, good morning. You're at 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Um, I would like to remember my father, Captain Robert Greskoviak, who's in the Air Force and was um, killed in action in 1965 when I was just about a year old. Wow. Wow. Did did your did your mom then tell you stories about your dad as you were growing up? You know what? She never talked about him. Oh my goodness. She never talked about him. So uh the stories I did get, the the few stories I did get were from my grandparents and his sister, my aunt. Mm. Wow. That's um well, that's, it just, I don't even know what to say to something like that. It just must, um, you, you want to talk about somebody who really did make the ultimate sacrifice. That would be your dad. Yep. That would be your dad. Thank you very much for the call, Lisa. I appreciate it. Let's take a quick break back with more of your calls. If you're on the line, please hold on. One open phone line if you want to join us, 414-799-1620. That's the number. This is our typical. We do this. It is traditional. It is our Memorial Day tribute, your opportunity to remember people who served our country who are no longer with us. It's 1022. This is Jeff Wagner. 1020. 1025, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Lori writes, I'd like to remember my dad, Michael Fostum, United States Army, Korean War, and my friend, Ralph Hirsch, Vietnam War. Thank you. Well, thank you, Lori. 414-799-1620 is the number. Let's talk to uh, Don in Mequon. Don, good morning. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Who would you like to recognize? Well, I want to recognize my father, Tech Sergeant Joe Chudnow, who served in North Africa and Italy with the 30th Signal Heavy Construction Battalion attached to Mark Clark's 5th Army. Mm -hmm. 
Also, his younger brother, who also served in the same theater, um, Corporal Irv Chudnell, drove a Sherman tank through those uh, campaigns. Uh, my uncle, Nate Irwin, who was one of the first sailors aboard uh, on Omaha Beach and whose mission was to destroy German beach obstacles, managed to come through that unscathed. Wow. Wow. Uh, and finally, uh, my father-in-law, uh, uh, Nate uh Norm Blumberg, who was a tail gunner on a B-24 in the Pacific Theater. Well, a, a, a lengthy history of distinguished service in your family, Don. Thank you. No, thank you for the call. Uh, let's talk to Christopher in Illinois. Christopher, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Who would you um, like to recognize? Like to, huh? Who would you like to recognize? I would like to recognize uh, Leo Forsness who was a, a, an F-105 pilot. He flew uh, a mission in Vietnam where he um, engaged MiGs even after his ammunition had run out so that he could draw them away from rescue aircraft. Mm-hmm. He was later shot down and spent six years in the Hanoi Hilton. And even though he's not close to me, his story touched me uh, his biography is called Survive. His autobiography is called Surviving Hell. Right. And the reason I was thinking of him today is because he passed away on May second from leukemia, and his death was not much noted in the press. Yep. Because of all the right. strange things we have going on at the moment. But no, I think that you're. I mean, thank you for the call, and I think that that's just again, it's an outstanding thing to. Again, think back and, and just remember, again, the sacrifices that people have made. Rosina in Oconomowoc writes, I'd like to remember my dad, Frank Bruno, who served in the European theater from 41 through 45. Just think about that. Hurt while in Italy with shrapnel, recovered in Germany, and finally, while transporting German prisoners, the truck overturned, pinning him beneath the wheels. The prisoners lifted the truck to free him. He recovered in a VA hospital in Milwaukee. He never spoke of the war, but... Um, but to tell us why he had shrapnel scars all over his chest and back. I, the, the thing that's, that's also amazing to me about people who, who served both in, in Vietnam, the Korean War, World War II, th- this was before the Internet. This was before cell phones. I mean, you would have people, for example, she says 1941 to 1945, who would, other than the, the occasional letter that they might track people down, they were incommunicado for, for weeks and sometimes months at a time. It, it, it's not like you can keep up you know, on, a, on an almost daily basis or whatever with the Internet and things like that. It's just, you know, you had people who went away and, and they were just gone. Imagine what that was like for the people serving and imagine what it was like for the people, you know, back here at home. James in Milwaukee. James, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. James. Hello. Hi, James. James. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, I served in the Korean War, and uh, also my brother, he's dead now, was in the Korean War and World War II. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to honor my brother. What? Um, there were two sons in our family, yeah. and we both were, and we did our duty. James, what what do you remember? What years? What years were you overseas? I, I was in. Uh, I went in in 1954. Yep. And they shipped me up to Kodiak, Alaska, and I did. Uh, I did two years up there in Kodiak, Alaska. Got it. I was in the Korean conflict, but I actually was serving in Kodiak, Alaska, by my brother served in Korea. Understood. Um, James, thank you for your service, and uh, thanks for remembering your brother.
1035, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jeff emails me. I remember my father, Richard, a veteran doctor in the Vietnam War who passed away in Appleton on June 2nd of 2015 after a brave battle with Agent Orange-associated illnesses. Uh, both the military and the Patriot Guard riders made very much appreciated presentations during his funeral activities. Um, Eric emails me. I'd like to recognize Michelle Whitmer, who died in Iraq in 2004. Her Sergeant Mike Anderson is a close personal friend of mine, and we work together as Washington County Sheriff's deputies. Her death was hard for him, and I always want to know that I won't ever forget her and her sacrifice. Hmm. Um, yeah, the, the, these stories. Let's talk to Betty in Brookfield. Betty, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Hi there, Hi, Betty. Jeff. Um, I would like to recognize my... Uh, brother-in-laws. I have two brother-in-laws and Richard Summers who was in the Air Corps on the, off the Aleutian Islands up in in Alaska, near Alaska and um, uh, he flew planes off of um, uh, what do you call them? Carriers? Okay, yeah. wow. <laughs> and wow. and uh, my other brother-in-law um, Teddy Roberts who, who um, was in the Navy and I don't know, was in where the big Furnaces keep the boats running. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That that sort of thing. But most especially, I want to remember my husband, Philip Wallace Roberts. We both grew up in Whitefish Bay and were high school companions in those days. And um, he was in paratroopers and flew over Japan. He made um, three jumps over there. And... uh, uh, seem to like it, and it's a scary thing when you're over a foreign country and you're <laughs> diving in, you know. Well, be, being a paratrooper would be a scary thing <laughs> regard, yeah, regardless, time, yeah. Right? Right. And then I have a son, uh, Timothy, Timothy Philip Roberts, who was um, in, was a Marine in uh, the last war, whichever yeah. one that was, Korean, well, <laughs> whatever. Anyway, as soon as he... Uh, finished a he re-upped for a a six-year term after his original thing and when he got out of the uh, uh, marines he was snapped up by nasa oh and though he is still alive nasa is using him in um the you know uh forming the the bases and the and everything for everything that we shoot up Okay. Uh, in the sky, you know, oh, to God. do all her stuff. He's worked on the... Well, you must be very proud of everybody, Betty. You must be very proud. Thank you for your call. Let's see. Uh, Diane writes, I'd like to honor my dad, Louis John Barsall, World War II, in the Army, captured in the Battle of the Bulge, was in a war prison till the end of the war, died at age of 47 due to injuries endured in the war, never spoke about it, never complained. Um... Let's see. Uh, Tom in West Bend writes, I'd like to honor my father, George Brueger, Navy, Korean War, and my father-in-law, John Toma, Air Force, Korean War, um, these stories. I'm Chad from Oconomowoc. I'd like to remember my wife's cousin, Randy Schmidt, who passed away in December, who was from in the Air Force. Um, Yeah, the list list just goes on. 
I would like to remember my, it's another text, I'd like to remember my husband's aunt, uh, Godmother Katie. She passed away this past fall, six weeks short of her 100th birthday. She was training to drive tanks in World War II. She was all set up to go. Then the Army found out she could type. She ended up with an office job. She was madder than a wet hen. Let's talk to, um, let's see, George in West Dallas. George, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. I want to... I remember my brother-in-law George Reinke, my wife's my wife's uh, brother. She and I are in our, close to eighty, so he, and he was nineteen years older than her. Mm-hmm. But uh, she remembers just what you said. They never heard from him for weeks or months at a time. Sure, they didn't know where he was, if he was alive or dead. If they did get a letter from him, half of it was, uh, you know, like censored. censored. Out. Yeah. So we, uh, he, and he wouldn't talk about it. He was a medic. I think in the European theater, mm-hmm. I really don't remember, but uh, he was uh, a quiet guy, but he served his time. Uh, thank you for the call. I, I, I'm, I'm going to add uh, on that touch, speaking of medics, I want to um, recognize my dear friend and former law professor and um, golf buddy, Jim Giardi, who passed away last year in his mid-90s. Um, Jim was D-Day plus three, and I he served as a medic and uh, just an amazing man and almost the only, the only time he would ever talk about his experiences, at least with me, is if I would make a point of trying to draw him out about it because I was so fascinated by it. But um, the, the, the sacrifices, and, and just going back to what the last caller was saying we were talking about, it's, it's just almost amazing to me in this era of, of instant communication. I just I can't imagine what it would have been like to be, be taken from your, your family, you know, your, your spouse, your, your children, and then, you know, you're put on a train, and then you're put on a troop ship, and, and you're overseas for, for the duration. And yet, yes, you, you have letters, and you can send letters, and maybe they can find you, and maybe you get that letter every few months or whatever, or maybe you get the mail call, and you get a whole bunch of letters every few months. But that inability to just stay in touch, that must have been... That must have been as hard as as anything, and and that was true in World War II, and it was true in the Korean War, and it was true in the Vietnam War as well. David in Waukesha. David, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very well, thank you. Who would you like to remember, sir? I'd like to remember my grandfather, Jack Prince. Uh, he served in the Korean War as a, as a United States Marine. Uh, we just lost him about six weeks ago, um, and it w- would have been his 86th birthday last Sunday. Wow. Um, yeah, so he uh, he fought a long, hard life, and he was part of the, the Chosen Reservoir. The Frozen battle. Chosen, absolutely, yeah. sure. Yeah, and very, very proud of that, uh, very proud of his his service there. And, and uh, after doing some research uh, after his death for, for writing his eulogy, um, man, what those guys endured and, and how they came back is, is, is amazing. No, it is. It, truly it, amazing. It, it, you know, I mean, it, David, thanks for bringing that up. The... I, Lost between World War II and the, the, the Vietnam War, what was the you know they'd call it a conflict. They didn't want to call it a war, but it, it was it was a war. And I, I've, I've I've had an opportunity for the last several years to kind of read up on on my history, and it, it is 
it is amazing. And I, I think what some of us know about the Korean War might be what we, we saw in the TV show MASH or something like that. But the truth of the matter is, if you look at some of the sacrifices that, that happened and some of the military blunders, candidly, that the, the leaders of the United States made, and then, you know, the... The, the various battles and the retreats that you know the the attacks that came out and and how people responded you you understand just the, the sacrifices that the people who fought in the Korean War had to make as, as as well and it's in many cases it still remains the forgotten war and that is unfortunate so if you're a fan of and interested in history as I am, I would certainly encourage you to pick up a couple of the books and just read about it if you want to understand it. And again, I'm, I understand that that's directed to people who might be under the age of 40. Um, if you lived it, you certainly remember that. Roberta in Pewaukee. Roberta, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Who would you like I'd to like, remember? Oh, I'd like to remember. My family was a big military family, and I'd like to remember my mother. My dad, my uncles—they were all all military. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Um, the, the entire family. So you must have been very proud of everybody. Very proud, and today, still to today, my nephews and are still in the military. Well, um, thanks for the call, and thanks for their, their service. Uh, Joan in Milwaukee. Joan, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning, Joan. Joan. Hello? Hi, Joan. Joan. Hi, Joan. You're on the air. Good morning. I'd like to remember my dad, who lied about his age in order to get into World War One. World War One. Yes. Wow. In the trenches, ended up in a hospital in France, and actually made it back home to have a family. He died at the age of 59 in 1959. I have a brother, a son and uncles, all who served in the military. I honor them all. Um, thank but you. my dad in particular. <laughs> Absolute World War One. Wow, thank you. We're going to do this for one more segment. If you're on the line, please hold on. If uh, you want to join us, 414-799-1620. I'll try to get to as many calls as possible, and I'll also share a number of uh, the texts that we are getting as well. It's 1045. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1048, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I'm going to try to get to as many calls as I can and also as many of the, the written tributes. If I miss yours, I sincerely apologize. Uh, Bob sends me an email. I'd like to remember my father, Lieutenant Colonel Elias Garfinkel, a medic in World War II. He served at Guadalcanal. He would not talk about his experience. He was also a volunteer at the VA Medical um, Hospital. Uh, let's see, on our text line. My name is Gene. I'd like to remember three of my brothers, John Army, Paul Air Force, and Phil in the Korean War. My second husband, Val Valdez, Air Force Vietnam, all have passed away. Uh, another text, I'd like to remember my father-in-law, Stan Prop and his brother, Richard Prop for their service to our country. All right, let's talk to Diane in Oconomowoc. Diane, good morning. Good morning. I'd like to remember my uncle, uh, who was a World War II vet and served in Italy, and my husband's uncle, uh, who was also in World War II. We believe he served at Normandy or D-Day. We're not quite sure. He right. never talked about it. But he was captured by the Germans. He escaped and was recaptured and just brutally tortured, um, held outside in a six-by-six bamboo cage. Um, for the, until he was rescued by the Allies. Wow. <laughs> I mean, did, did did he ever discuss? Did, did did they ever discuss this with you? You know, when you were growing up and stuff, or not really? 
we weren't allowed to talk about it with him. It was just little bits that we'd pieced right. together from his wife, from right. letters he had written. Um, we were it was right. never talked to Uncle Eddie about it. Um, he just couldn't talk about it. Well, and it you was can, too too harsh. You can certainly understand that. No, thank you for the call, Diane. Let's talk to Fred in Franklin. Fred, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. I'd like to uh, remember a. Uh, school a buddy of mine who was in vietnam and made it home but uh, years later contracted a cancer that was uh, due to the exposure from agent orange right his name is gerald drew gerald drew um yeah thank, thanks that's they you know thank things we're we're going to be having this conversation um a lot as as and like i say I, I i take nothing away from world war ii greatest generation i love it I, I mean i think that's very appropriate but i mean i think you know again the, the veterans people who served in the korean war the people who served in vietnam they, these are greatest generations as well and i put apply that through you know desert storm one and two and all that um and, and i think as more of our vietnam veterans age and you know deal with some of the issues that are related to you know vietnam including the agent orange issue i, I think you know we're going to be you know, unfortunately, having more and more of these calls, you know, relating to Vietnam veteran um, era veterans. Let's talk to Ed and Fond du Lac. Ed, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. Today I'd like to uh, honor and remember my father-in-law, Emery Voy. He was a buck sergeant. He was in the uh, Battle of the Bulge. Wow. Uh, he was an anti-aircraft gunner. Wow. Um, thanks for the call. I'm just gonna I'm gonna try to get through as many calls as we possibly can. Um, let's talk to uh, let's see Bill and Racine. Bill, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a short list here. Start with my mother who served uh, stateside in the Marines in World War II. Uh, one of her brothers, Robert Schrader, South, uh, was a Marine served in the South Pacific. Her other brother, Harvey Schrader. Uh, served in the Marines, and Harvey's grandson was the first Wisconsin casualty in the Gulf War, died of friendly fire, oh and uh, he was a Marine. Uh, three guardsmen who were between Korea and Vietnam, my wife's two brothers, Jim and John Hewitt, uh, my sister's husband, Charles Soldice, and the last one, my father just celebrated his 94th birthday. He was a drill sergeant and served in the South Pacific as a Marine. Wow, that's quite a list. Thanks for the call on our text line. I'd like to recognize my father, whose first command was in the storming of Anxious during World War II. After returning home, he pursued his career with the Milwaukee Journal, followed by 35 years at WTMJ. He left us in 2004 and is missed every day by my brothers, sisters, and myself. Never talked about his time in the military. He was a truly great man and a devoted husband and father. We all miss you, Dad. Let's talk to Tom in Oak Creek. Tom, good morning. Tom. Okay, let's... Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, let's Irv on the north side. Irv, you're on 620 WTMJ. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm named after my father. Private Irwin R. Gross, Sr. He joined Company D, 127th United States National Guard, 32nd Division, 1917. He was wow. born on May 8th, 1897, and he served in that National Guard for two years and was released. And then in 1942, he was at Fort MacArthur 
and uh, served right. as a sergeant in the training corps. Wow, just amazing. Again, amazing the sacrifices that people made. Rich and Wes Alice texts, he'd like to remember uh, Tom Fay, U.S. Marine Corps of Vietnam, his uncle, um, Josh Pearson, 10th Mountain Army, two tours in Afghanistan. Um, um, this is a tradition, as long as I'm here doing this show, this is a tradition that we will continue um, this time. It's just, uh, it, it makes you, again, I appreciate it. The way I started this segment, I understand Memorial Day weekend, people are thinking about picnics and people are thinking about doing planting and hanging out with your friends and seeing the big movies that open up, and that is all well and good. But let's let's not forget the purpose of Memorial Day, and I think segments like this bring it home to all of us. It certainly brings it home to me. It's 1054, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1057, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We do podcast these segments, and um, matter of fact, we podcast the entire show. You can go to WTMJ.com, and I know a lot of people do um, listen that way. And check out the on our mobile app page, you'll see the Jeff Wagner Show podcast, and this one will be up uh, later on today if you want to just review it. I, again, I find it incredibly moving. I apologize for some of the calls we couldn't get to, and um, a number, again, of the very um, moving tributes um and i just i just didn't have an opportunity to read them all and i'm I'm very very sorry but uh, like i say as long as i have the privilege of doing this show this will be a regular feature leading into memorial day every year we completely switch gears coming up in just a couple minutes guy is complaining his story has found its way into the local newspaper i have a different take and i'll share it with you and then we've got the weekend review coming up a little bit later it's 1058 jeff wagner 620 wtmj 1108, Jeff Wagner. So, Jane, Ryan Braun goes on the disabled list because his calf was a little tight. I mean, come on. Rub a little dirt on it, you know? Ow. (laughs) uh, Yeah, rub a little dirt on it. Same calf, same situation. It's going to be interesting to see what the Brewers do. This really is their uh, first adversity of the season. You've got a four-game losing streak. Uh, Braun's going to be out for a while. I think the interesting thing is going to be is uh, the Brewers, to replace him, do they try to kind of go with what they've been doing, or they've got a couple really hot-shot outfielders who are doing real well in the AAA, or do they bring bring one of those up to fill in? Actually, I'd like to see him make a dramatic move. And rather than bouncing one of these pitchers back and forth, I'd like to see him bring up one of these stars and stuff. But uh, Braun's going to be out probably for for a while because um, they brought him back and he wasn't ready to go. All right, we've got the Week in Review coming up in about 20 minutes. I There's a story in... There's a story in the Journal Sentinel today that caught my attention. It's uh, Jim Stingle, who's one of their uh, – it's kind of interesting. I don't know. I mean, he's been doing this for years and years, and he writes sort of you know, community interest sort of stories, not necessarily – certainly not the heavy political stuff, but kind of interesting ones. And this one caught my attention. The headline is, Ticket for Missing License Plate in Chicago Angers This Guy. Now, let me back into this story for a minute. In Wisconsin, the law is that you have to have both a front and a back license plate. That's what the law is. So you, um, there, and, and that's the case, I think like 31 states, the law says you have to have two license plates, one in the front, one in the back. And it's like a $150 fine if, if you don't. There are a minority of states that only require you to have one license plate in the back. But in Wisconsin, you have to have a license plate on the front and back. And by the way, I don't think, 
that is an unreasonable sort of requirement, especially with all the idiots that are out on the roadways and with people who speed and people, you know, who drive the way they do. You know, having that second license plate makes it easier to identify the car. Maybe you think it's a dumb law, but it doesn't matter. It is the law. You have to have license plates in the front and back of your car. That's the background. So here's here's the story. And... All right, there's a guy who, who contacts Stingle. So this is the story he writes. Um, so-and-so, guy who lives in, I think, Bayside, said paid $30 a day to park his car at Chicago Midway International Airport and returned from a five-day trip to find a $60 ticket on his vehicle. His offense? Not having a front license plate. This didn't sit well with the guy who promptly tore up the ticket. What in the hell right does the city of Chicago have to extort $60 out of me, which is what they're doing, that corrupt city, he said. Um, But then a notice of violation arrived in the mail a couple weeks later. It was, to quote the citation, photo enforced. That means that a photograph was taken when the ticket was issued. Photos are taken as evidence that a violation has occurred, it said. Translation, we've got you cold on this one. Resistance is futile. Um, there were two photos, April 28th, showing his rear plate and no license plate on the front. He admits he had no front plate. His argument is it's none of Chicago's business. I sent a protest back by mail. My guess is they deny it, but I'm not paying for this ticket. This is his story. He leased a car, a Mercedes E30, E300, in October and says he was told by a local dealership that the front bumper didn't have a spot for the plate, but that Wisconsin doesn't insist on one there anyway. That is incorrect. This is what the story says. He has since learned. Wisconsin and Illinois both require front and rear plates on most vehicles. There are 19 states, including Michigan, that don't. The Milwaukee Police Department and the Milwaukee Sheriff's Department both Tell the reporter, yeah, um, you know, we issue tickets for missing plates. The fine in Milwaukee County is $150.10. The spokesperson for the sheriff's department says, well, we don't just ticket out-of-state violators. We just ticket violators. All right, someone in the news affairs office at the Chicago Police Department said it's ridiculous that anyone would object to a ticket like this. Um, We're supposed to have two license plates in the state of Illinois. We get tickets if we don't have two license plates in the state of Illinois. If the state doesn't require two plates, then you don't receive a ticket. All right, so... Wisconsin says you got to have two plates. Illinois says you got to have two plates. The guy is driving a car from Wisconsin with one plate, and he gets a ticket, and he's complaining about it. Our numbers are four is four one four seven nine nine one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now maybe, just maybe, if this guy was from a state that did not require a second plate. Just maybe, you know, if, if, if Michigan is one of those states and, you know, you, you park in Chicago and they try to give you a ticket, well, maybe then you have an argument about, like, states' rights and the Commerce Clause and, and whatever. But you're supposed to have two plates. You don't have two plates. You get ticketed. All right. And he's upset about the 60 bucks. I, excuse me, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, his story is when he leased the car in October, the dealership, the Mercedes dealership, told him you, you don't need a second plate. Now, I, I, I will accept that as true, although I find it, I mean, 
it's it's kind of difficult for me to believe that you've got a car dealership that is operating in Wisconsin that said that doesn't know what the law is with regard to plates. But the law is you got to have you got to have two plates. All right, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I. I, I rail about, you know, tickets and things like that as much as anybody. I'm one of the leading opponents of what they do with the parking checkers, um, you know, where they, like, chicken hawk the parking meters in downtown Milwaukee to write tickets. But I'm not sure I understand this guy's complaint. The law in Wisconsin is you got to have two plates. He didn't have them. The law in Illinois is you got to have two plates. He didn't have them on his Wisconsin car. He got a ticket. 414-799-1620 for failing to have the plate. Al in Kenosha. Al, you're first. Good morning. Uh, good morning. And you are talking about something that is very, very, it's just excellent, because all you have to do is sit anywhere at any major intersection in southeastern Wisconsin here yep. and just count how many cars go by in a five-minute period that don't have their front license plate. You know, you know it, Al, Al it, I'm glad you called on that point, because when I saw this story this morning, and I, I don't have... I mean, as I was driving to work today, so, I mean, it's only like a 10-minute drive, so I'm not saying I, I saw this whole universe of cars, but I would guess that probably two out of every 10 cars that I saw just from driving from my house to work didn't have a front plate on it. Because I was I was intentionally looking at this, but I would say yeah. at least 20% of the cars didn't have front plates on them. And you will notice, too, the more expensive and foreign that the car is, no front license plate, because the... It's an option that these foreign dealers have to put on the car okay. to accommodate a front license plate. They don't come with them, so they're telling the customers you don't need it anyway. Um, and, of course, that's not true. That's <laughs> right. Thank you. Right. right. That's not true. Now, again, this guy, it might be he's got a beef. Now, if but his beef, to me, is with the leasing company. If they, in fact told him you don't need a license plate and sent him out without a license plate if i were him i might be going back to them saying hey you guys misled me here i want you to pay the 60 dollar ticket but but at the same time i i I just i guess i don't i don't find the, the parking checkers i don't find the city of chicago at fault and I don't understand what the big deal is if the law says you're supposed to have two plates. And by the way, like I say, it's a law that makes sense to me. You don't have two plates. What's the issue? Steve in Grafton. Steve, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi. Good morning, Jeff. Um, you are a scoff law, my note says. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, I want to say that I, I take the side of, of the Mercedes driver. A couple of reasons. The car was parked in a parking structure, so he wasn't even driving, but that's here and over there. My point is, I'm a Corvette owner, and it's kind of an unwritten rule that as Corvette drivers very rarely uh, have a front license plate. Uh, I keep my, I have it, it's in the trunk of my car, but uh, if you're out and about, you see a Corvette, very rarely do you see it on the front because it kind of takes away from the appearance. <laughs> okay, okay, well, see, and see, that, okay, so that, 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 that's a decision, all right, see, I get it. That's a decision you're making aesthetically, yeah. it ruins the look of your car. Go, right. God bless you. Go with God. But if you get pulled over by, you know, the Ozaki County Sheriff's Department. And yeah, they, I got to buy it. It's going to cost me the ticket. I'll pay it. Okay, right. Thanks. Fair enough. See, that, that's see, that's my only point. I mean, if, if you, okay, in your case, I get it. You think it ruins the look of the car. I, it's fine. I don't have a problem. You know, you, you, you do that, but understand that there's going to be a consequence for, for doing that, you know, because the law says you're supposed to have the ticket. And I guess I just don't, again, I, I'm looking at this story, and it's like, oh, this guy's absolutely outraged. 
Well, what do you mean you're outraged? You're supposed to have that, that ticket. You're supposed to have the license plate. And again, if you were misinformed by the dealership, well, then you've got a beef with the dealership. But, um, you know, seriously, let's talk to David in Beaver Dam. David, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I say sue the leasing company. Pay the ticket, sue the leasing yeah. company, and tell them, oh, and on top of that, you're going to provide a space on my vehicle. For this license plate. Uh, one other thing. I've been stopped for not having a front license plate. Yeah. Given a warning, and it was explained to me, well, yeah, some states don't require it. We don't ticket them guys. Right, right. But but Wisconsin does. Yeah, That thanks. Like I say, that's, that's where... I mean, I'm, I'm trying to go back to my like my like my like law school thing, and I'm trying to remember, you know, if if you're driving a car that's properly registered, like in Michigan, and they don't require it, you go to Illinois, can they force you to have that plate when you're in Illinois? And, and I don't know the answer to that. Okay, that's I, I'd have to really think that through. But it doesn't matter because the guy, whether he's driving in Illinois, whether it's registered in Illinois or it's registered in Wisconsin, you you need to have two plates. So he's he's doesn't come in with what I say clean hands. And yeah, I mean I don't know about suing the leasing company, but I'd certainly go to the leasing company and say, Hey, you know, I got this sixty dollar ticket. Here, I, I want you know, I want the, the sixty bucks. David in McGuanago. David, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Yes, hi. Hi, uh, hi. In the last twenty, twenty five years, maybe thirty, neither my wife or I have had front plates on any of our vehicles. Okay. And uh, <laughs> it's never been an issue. My grandson drove the car once and was stopped and he i think he mentioned a police officer mentioned it to him once yeah. front, front plate uh we've been stopped for various things over 20 30 years and nobody's ever mentioned or said anything <laughs> well see that then this david this has been an educational experience because you're supposed to have two <laughs> plates i mean i'm just saying that's that's what the uh you know that that's again what the law says now i i understand that this is probably not something that's aggressively enforced like i say i i think if you're driving around over memorial day weekend just kind of in the back of your mind look and see how many plates you know how many cars don't have the front plates so you can uh, again you know you, you can decide whether it should and i'm not arguing it should be aggressively enforced that's not what my point here is i'm just saying that if you get pulled over and or stopped and you get the ticket and because you don't have the front plate don't whine about it because that is exactly what the law says. It's 11:20. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 11:23. Jeff Wagner, 6:20 WTMJ. The Brewer Series with the Diamondbacks continues this evening at Miller Park. Mr. Baseball Bob Euchre and Jeff Levering begin our coverage of Game Two in the series at 6:35 right here on WTMJ. Sponsored by your Milwaukee Honda dealers. Yeah. It's interesting how principle takes a back seat when money is involved. Colin Kaepernick, remember Colin Kaepernick? He was the quarterback slash backup quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers who created all the stir last year when he decided that he wasn't going to stand for the national anthem and uh, ongoing discussion. And he just thought America was such a terrible country that he wanted to make, you know, his various statements. Well, okay, so he did. He got all his attention. Um, his contract with the 49ers expired. He is now a free agent. And and he hasn't been signed by anybody yet. You know, the um, football teams, they're all having their, you know, their, their OTAs and things like that. He doesn't have a team yet. And some people are suggesting, in part, it be, could be because he's uh, not just 
his skills were atrophying, but also because he's such a political hot potato that some teams just might not want the aggravation that, that comes with him. And if that's the case, well, okay, that's the case. Sorry. I mean, if you're going to be, you're going to decide you're going to be controversial, there might be consequences about that. But here's the interesting thing. He's apparently going around telling teams that if they sign him, if they give him money, don't worry, he will, he'll stand for the anthem this season. Hondo was just shaking his head. Yeah. So when he's getting the million do- multi-million dollar contract, America is so terrible and he's got to make this statement. But now that he's out on the street, now that he wants to make even more money, don't worry. Don't worry. Now I will stand. Interesting. Interesting. What a hypocrite. It's 1125. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. <laughs> It's 1134, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It is the time for our Week in Review. We are joined, as always, by Susie Falk from Falk Group PR. Good, Good morning. morning. Good morning. And Tracy Johnson from the Commercial Association of Realtors. Hello. Hello. All right, just so you both know, we are doing something. This is a first here for WTMJ because we live stream this on Facebook. That is not the first time that we have ever done that. Okay. But... Right now, we are also Facebook live streaming the Lance Sijon Memorial event, which is just oh. winding down. Yeah, side um, side. We're live streaming that, and we're so we're going to be doing dual. These are dual wow. live streaming things. So we're live streaming the life. Week in Review. At, well, I'm just uh, absolutely. We, so we're giving people. It's just amazing that we can do all this stuff. The technology is there. Right? So um, you can you have your choice, and you can go to Facebook.com and then 620 WTMJ, <laughs> and you can pick up the live stream. And um, again, I am the thorn between the two roses. All right. What an interesting week, huh? Let's start off um, horrible story. And both of you as as moms, this really has to go through you. The terror attack in England, the suicide bomber who sets up outside the perimeter of the concert, waits till kids come. And it's mostly kids. I mean, they're attending this particular concert, sets off the suicide bomb and, you, you know, have the, the awful the, the death toll and the injuries. Um, Susie Falk, can this happen here? Is there something we can do to prevent these things? Well, I think we need to be extremely vigilant. And, um, Jeff, I know you talked about this, I think, yesterday on the show, or maybe it was the day before. And you had a caller who was a cop who called in and talked about Summerfest and the measures that they are taking and have taken over the years. And, you know, I, I think that Summerfest and all the other festivals and all of the organizers of any event that baseball games, of, you baseball know, games. Miller Park, Lambeau right. Field, whatever. Yeah. Right. It's it, they're they're reacting. Okay. So this is this is terrorism, sort of the new form of it now, where these guys are hanging out at the at the gates waiting for people. Okay. So we're just going to get smarter. We're going to get on top of it. Um, these are very random acts. Uh, sadly, the terrorists win when we become fearful and we refuse to let our teenage kids go to Summerfest for right. fear of the unknown and this unlikely event that it would ever happen. So I think the answer is, you know, and sadly, there will be more examples of this throughout the world. I think the U.S. has a pretty good handle on security. I think, you know, they're looking for ways to improve all the time. But I give a lot of credit to, to those folks out there that are smarter than me that are figuring out how to prevent this from happening again. Well, and I think not just you talk about being random. I mean, they're very opportunistic. I mean, anytime you have a crowd of people, you've, you've got this this risk. And, yeah. and I think, uh, you know, not only do we need to be vigilant, but we need to be 
out there and saying, okay, this looks suspicious to me, or this is suspicious behavior. Because every time they go back and they look at these these terrorists who are c- causing these crimes, it's, it's like there was a path there. Mm-hmm. And of course this was going to happen. And I think that there, that people need to not be afraid to speak to, to up. Yeah, see that that's you know that that's the point I was trying to make. That there's we we live in a politically correct society, and I I, I try to deal with realities, and, and this is it is an uncomfortable reality for some people. But the truth is, seventy five year old African American women on walkers are not suicide sure. bombers. Now I'm not saying they couldn't be, um, but but they're not. There is a pattern. It's not exclusive, but when you see these terrorist attacks, it, it's young Arab males. That that's just the reality. And you know, we we have this thing where we say, "See something, say something." But I wonder if that discourages some people because they don't want to be accused of profiling, they don't want to be accused of ethnic bias, and, and they hold back. And the truth is, you know, I mean, I think it is a factor. I'm and I'm certainly not suggesting that you know. Even point zero 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 point one percent of young Arab males are, are terrorists, but but that's that is the pattern. So I mean, isn't that the reality? Well, I think you have to look at the behavior and try sure. to get beyond it. And, and I mean, if it's, if it's behavioral, yes, say something. If there's an Arab that's walking, right. you know, down the street, I mean, I'm not right. going to report that. But so, even our governments, um, like shame on our on the governments that had these people on these watch lists. I mean, I, I don't know all the details of what happened in Egypt, as an example, but another example of a. Uh, a religious-fueled crime and, and attack and all of this violence. There's there, there's just too much of it going on. I think what what is so scary about this one is that no measure of protection or right. detection could have caused this. And for some, it, yeah. that was what was really scary for me. Well, well, right, because you keep moving the perimeters back. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean... I don't mean to pick on Summerfest because I think they have very good security. But okay, the summer the security at Summerfest starts. At, it doesn't start in the parking lots. Right. It starts in at the gates. I mean, they have they have security patrols and all. But I mean, they don't search people's cars. You can't search people's cars, and, and so we're always going to be vulnerable. There's all these soft targets. I shopping malls at Christmas time. There, there's only so we. I, I say I agree with you, Susie. I think we have to. You have to recognize that this is unfortunately a risk that we have to deal with. Otherwise, we just all hold up in our bunkers. Can I add this, too? I think Bradley Center issued a statement after the Manchester bombings. And I believe believe the smartest thing for event organizers and for our our leaders, our political leaders, to do is to reassure us that they're, they're on top of it. And don't, you know, okay, it's Memorial Day weekend. A lot of people gave their lives so that we could enjoy the freedoms that this beautiful country offers us. If we sit at home in fear... If we don't let our 19-year-old daughter go to Summerfest because we're worried that this might happen, then guess what? That was all for nothing. So, you know, but we need to hear from leadership and we need to hear from security officials what they're working on and why we should be reassured. Well, and even uh, even Rex Tillerson, I believe, issued a statement this morning about, you know, and I think... You know, s- switching a little bit of gears to you know that Donald Trump's you know international visits. What he, what he was really saying is all religious leaders need to be uh, calling these people out, all of these extremists out, and that's where it really needs to start. So you know, but I, I think for how it affects us on our daily lives, we also have to be more patient. Look, I, I'm I'm as impatient a guy as anybody, <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, you're going through the airport, and everybody gets frustrated. Oh, I got to go through the additional screening, or you get mad at the TSA people, mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, the truth of the matter is, 
while we don't want to sacrifice our freedoms, the reality is maybe we're going to be inconvenienced a little more. You know, maybe maybe there are going to be they decide we're going to do the random searches of mm-hmm. cars coming into a parking mm-hmm. lot or something like that. I'd be and fine with that. Yeah, and we're just going to well, have to put up with it. Yeah, That's just I, the reality. I like it when they're thorough. When I go to Miller Park or, or, or Lambo, it's great when they look through my bag, and I like to know that they're paying attention. <laughs> I really have no problem with that because the the more thorough, the better. I don't want to be frisked, but on the other hand, it's like good to know they're really paying attention. Yeah, I, I always feel bad for the people that work at TSA because, and I understand people don't, but it's kind of like every, okay, air, airport. Everybody's on their last nerves. You know, you're running for the plane. And you're you just, late. Right, you're, you're always late. You want to get on the plane. You just oh my gosh, you know you and. And so people cop attitudes with the TSA folks. And I'm like, these poor, they're, they're doing right. the best they can. I mean, you want to talk about a thankless job. You're reviewing thousands, tens of thousands of bags a day. Almost all of them aren't going to pose a problem. But Lord forbid, if you ever miss that one that does, yep. mm-hmm. it's going to be a mess. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, the Trump budget calls for paid family leave for everybody. We discuss along with a lot of other stuff. Stick around. It's 1142. This is the Week in Review. Jeff Wagner, Susie Falk, Tracy Johnson. We are also live streaming on Facebook Live, so check that out as well. It's 1146. Jeff Wagner, Susie Falk, Tracy Johnson. The Week in Review, topic number two. All right. I've been, I'm curious as to where you ladies come down on this. Um, as part of the, the, the Trump budget that's proposed, um, he, he is advocating mandatory six weeks of paid family leave for men and women. It would be administered by the states, kind of like unemployment comp is now. Employers would have to pay into the fund, but mandatory six weeks paid leave. Right now, you've got, um, you know, under the, uh, the Family Medical Care Leave Act, you were entitled to 12 weeks of unpaid leave. All right, Tracy Johnson, six weeks, paid family leave. I just, six weeks, well, first of all, for maternity leave, I don't think six weeks is enough. And you would probably be setting yourself up for, you know, people complaining that that's just not enough time. Um, I just, I don't like this idea. Um, I think it would increase the cost of, you know, the the. the well, they say it's going to cost billions of dollars. It's, there's, it's, there's, it's a billion of dollar entitlement. Well, and, billions it, of dollars. and it's not like increasing the minimum wage, but it's still, I think, an entitlement that we just don't have the dollars for. And I think it also takes away an individual's ability to negotiate their maternity leave uh, with their employer, because I think oftentimes that's what happens is you just figure it out. You negotiate it, uh, whether it's paid or unpaid. I just think this is unnecessary and I don't like it. Susie Falk. I'm not quite sure how it got there, actually, in, in the budget, except for possibly Ivanka comes to Dad and says, you know, Dad, this would make a lot of sense, and she's an advocate for right. these types of ideas. So my guess is he said something like, honey, I'll throw it in there for you, but guess what? It's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> because it's not going to go anywhere. It never does. It, 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 they don't know how they're going to pay for it. I mean, fundamentally, I think it's a fabulous idea. I think, you know, if you can create a workplace environment that is supportive of families and especially time for dads to bond with their children, their babies, I think it makes a lot of sense, but I don't know how you pay for it. So right. it's not going to happen. And, and, and is a small business person herself. Yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's if, well, right, if, if, right, if, right. If you had, if, if you had a mandate that all of a sudden for for any employees that you would have, that you would have to offer six mm-hmm. weeks of paid leave. That would have a huge impact it on your business. Would. You bet it would. Well, and, but, and I'm a small business, and there are so many of us out there that this would really hurt. Right. And I've dealt with this uh, several times, both both myself and employees. And what you do is you figure it out. You make a deal. You figure right. it out. 
you know, paid, unpaid, this takes yeah. your vacation, but you're going to commit to completing well, these tasks. See, and the other thing I wonder is in, in the universe of, of benefits, we, where, how important this is to overall employees, you know, because obviously it's going to cost a lot of money. So this means if you're going to pay for this, that means you're not going to pay, you're going to have to cut back on other stuff mm-hmm. for other employees. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm, Sam, with you, I just don't think, I, I, it is wonderful for companies that offer this. Yeah. That's great, but I just don't think the government has the role. All right, I'm also intrigued by topic number three. Mm-hmm. The legislature, uh, Wisconsin legislature, is considering drug testing recipients as a condition for public assistance. Good idea, bad idea, Susie Falk. I think it's a bad idea, and here's why. It's expensive to test these folks, and if you look at other states that have done this and they're spending a lot of money on this, they're, they're, not, they're not finding very many offenders. Only catch a small so, percentage, a small that's true. Percentage. So what's, what's the point is, is my point. A couple hundred, okay, fine. Is it worth it? I don't think so. Well, I think there, there are two reasons why it is a good idea. First, it's showing the taxpayers who are paying for these programs that you are taking this seriously and that there's some accountability measures. And secondly, I think what what employers will say is that they, they struggle to find employees. So maybe this is a, another way that we are ensuring people are ready for the workforce who aren't using drug who aren't using drugs because that is the, the number cost, though i'm mean, talking about taxpayer dollars you know the- i would say yes i would say yes if you can keep people uh, you you have to follow the entire life of a drug user to to really mm-hmm. try to capture that whole cost and i think drug testing is a very small small well, price to pay well i tracy I, I don't know about the i mean Susie's self-employed but i i don't know about your place as a condition of getting working here for scripts and we've been journal broadcast first you had to go through a drug test and my guess is that there's only an there's and i don't know but my guess is there's only an extremely small percentage of employee potential employees who test positive i mean maybe that happens but i I think the vast majority don't so i guess but uh, but these are the people aren't these people aren't coming to work for scripts these are people that are looking to work on construction sites and you know oh no well my point was but, but i mean businesses do it you know, and my guess is the business catch rate isn't that great either, but yet they do it as, as a thrust. Mm-hmm. Okay, related to that, mm-hmm. what about the idea of requiring able-bodied people to either be working or to be looking for jobs or in job training as a condition of getting benefits? That I agree with. I think that's that's smart. I mean, if they if they want the benefits, then they have to show good faith effort to, to actually go out and at least try to find a job. So, well, and talk about an expensive program to to administer and account for. I mean, I think that this is it's a very expensive to do that. But I think, as a society, we need to be keep pushing for that. And as Governor Walker's platform of job creation and putting people to work, I think it it fits. And the, and those who are against it, I think what they need to realize is that I. I think this is actually going to go through and they're going to have to get on board and help with the communication to rally the communities to to get on board and get employed. Okay, my favorite story of the week, (laughs) the story that the BP gas station downtown, right at the at the heart of the third ward, kind of right by where your offices are, Ms. Falk. Um, I think maybe the only gas station that immediate area of downtown other day, 27 year old woman. She's sitting in her car. She's she's gotten out of the car she's pumping gas she's sitting in the car gas pump shuts off she gets out to take out the the hose in the space of literally five seconds car pulls up guy gets out of the car jumps in her car starts to drive off she jumps on the hood of the car (laughs) 
jumps on the hood of the car and starts banging on the windshield. Ultimately, the thief gets out of the car, runs away, jumps back in the car. They drive off. All right. Was was she a hero or was this one of the dumbest things you've ever seen? (laughs) You know, it went. Fortunately, it turned out great for her, but it could have gone really bad. You know, she's in the street clinging onto the car. She could have been hit. Well, I mean, the the guy could have had a gun. The guy could have floored it, you know, going 60 miles an hour in a stolen car. She looks she looks great because she survived to see another day. But it could have gone south. And I think she's kind of not that smart for having done that. My take, my kid was in there. I would do that probably. You you ask what I would do. And and here's the thing. This is one of those situations where you don't know what you're going to do. How do you spring into action? I think she's surprised. she I think probably she surprised herself. Oh, yeah. I think she was mad. Some people run to the fire and some people run away from it. Yeah. I think she's she's the type of girl that yeah. goes after it. And I think she was surprised by her reaction. Yeah. You know? Right. And, and, and I think she I think she was mad. I think it's like this, oh, sure. this you know, fill in the blank isn't stealing my car. <laughs> Not today. Um, what do you think you would have done, Tracy? You don't know? I actually think I would have run away. I mean, just knowing how I react to things, I would have right. freaked out and run away. I just think I would have, even though in my gut I want to say I would have been a hero and done exactly that, I think I would have run away. Here's the other larger point, though. I mean, what what does this say about, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon in downtown Milwaukee, and, you know, you, you have somebody who can't, you, you can't put gas in your car and get out of the car and walk around the back for five seconds without being the victim of a carjacking. Bad people are brazen, and they're becoming more so. And well, and if I'm cor- correct, this is the BP that's over by all that construction. Yeah, right by Summerfest. And there. Yeah. I was trying to get there the other day. I actually figured out how to get there, but it took me like 20 minutes to figure out how to get yeah. there. I don't know what this guy's plan to escape was. I mean, he's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> okay, um, we come back with our Right Stuff Awards. It's 1154. This is Jeff Wagner. Eleven fifty-six. Jeff Wacker, six twenty. WTMJ. The weekend review. Our right stuff awards. Susie Falk. Who wins from you this week? Uh, my dear friend John M. Noble. He's still alive at ninety-seven, and he's a World War II veteran. He saw the beaches of Normandy. He was severely injured. Um, he's alive, but I do salute him and thank him for his service. And I would encourage all your listeners, if they know veterans who are still alive. Please talk to them and, and, and get them talking because I think so many years later he's had a chance to heal. He's wanting to talk about his experience. So thank you to all of our veterans with us and not with us. Tracy Johnson. All right. Also, in honor of Memorial Day, my Right Stuff Award goes to the volunteers who helped place 34,000 flags at Wood National Cemetery in Milwaukee. There's some really beautiful images of th- that event taking place. Uh, the cemetery, as you know, is for war veterans, and they've been doing this for a number of years. So my thanks and my heart goes out to all of those who have served our country. Susie's waving her flag for those of you who are watching us on live Facebook live streaming. Um, obviously, I, I agree with the, the veterans' tributes as well. Um, on a closer level, Melissa Smith, she's a 27-year-old woman who jumped on that car that we were just talking about. I think that lady's got the right stuff. And on a very personal level, um, I, I've been here at WTMJ for you know 19-plus years, and more and more people who were here when I started are starting to leave. I'm I'm kind of getting to be close to the last man standing. Today is the last day for one of our salespeople extraordinaire, my dear friend Barb Johnson, who has been here. Well, I mean, she was here when I came, and um, today is her last day. She's going to be enjoying retirement with her husband. Barb has been an incredible asset over the years. I consider her to be a dear friend, and I am going to miss her very much. So on a personal level, Barb Johnson gets my Right Stuff Award for the week.